I'm looking forward to sharing with you part four of our series, Living in a Prophetic Age, this morning. Today we are looking at, uh, continuing to look at, the nation of Israel as it is so central in biblical prophecies. And through the course of this series, we've been learning how the prophecies of Scripture are not just events that have been fulfilled in the distant past or events to be yet fulfilled in the distant future, but we've been seeing how specific prophecies are actually being fulfilled in our time. We are, in fact, living in a prophetic age where we can see the stage being set for the final act of history and Jesus' return. Now, of course, the apostles of old already began to talk about the time following Jesus' ascension back to heaven as the last days or the end times, if you will. And yet, of course, we've learned over the past 2,000 years of church history that the end times or the last days has stretched on far longer than the apostles ever thought they would. And yet we can still see that through this age that there are final acts of history that have yet to take place, many of which the, the scriptures are pointing to being fulfilled in order. Many of these things, of course, hinged upon the nation of Israel being reestablished. And we have seen that notable, notable prophecy having taken place in the year 1948, only 70 years ago. And so that key prophecy has now opened the floodgate, if you will, for many more of the prophecies of things yet to take place to be now looming on the horizon of the world. Now, not only was Israel established against all odds in 1948, not only did it survive against the onslaught of all of the neighbors around it who wanted to eradicate her, but Israel has actually gone on to thrive as a nation for the past 70 years. And so we're going to focus in a little bit on that and what is yet to come. So would you bow with me this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all of it is true. We thank you that by your word is the foundation for all of life. And that also through your word we have a glimpse into the mysteries of what is yet to come. Of the final act of history. When you will pour out not only judgment but also a great spirit of revival. And we see it clearly in your word, Lord, that along with judgment on all those who are rebellious against you, there will be a tremendous opportunity for revival around the world and specifically with the nation of Israel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would this morning work in our hearts to look to the future, not just with foreboding of things that have to take place, but also with anticipation of the tremendous outpouring of your spirit, where many more will yet turn their lives to you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the opportunity to be a part of that in some way, Lord, that we could be used by you to bring many more into your kingdom. Speak through me, your servant, through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I referenced this morning how Israel not only survived, but has gone on to thrive and to make the hills bloom. And you'll see in this first slide this morning a picture that was taken in the year 1909. Now, it's a grainy picture. It's black and white. But you'll see in the foreground of the picture that the ground is all trampled and it's, it's desert, it's sand. In the background, there's sand dunes. You can't quite make it out, but on the left-hand side of the picture is actually the Mediterranean Sea because where those people are standing is modern-day Israel. They are overlooking an area where the modern-day city of Tel Aviv is now situated 
And as you can see, there's nothing there. It's wilderness, it's sand, and uh, it's, it's a place that who would really want it, to be perfectly honest? Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 34 to 35, gives this prophecy. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. And this is what it looks like today. That same picture, the same spot, there is the modern-day city of Tel Aviv. As you can see, it is green, it is lush, there are palm trees standing everywhere, and the man in the picture is our tour guide, Rafi, who gave us an amazing tour that I'll never forget through the land of Israel. Now, not only is Israel fulfilling this incredible prophecy from Ezekiel, but they've actually gone on to become one of the largest exporters of citrus fruits in the world. And this is fulfilling prophecy right before our very eyes. Now, while all of this is miraculous all on its own, there is a greater miracle still to come for Israel that almost every single Old Testament prophet told about. And that is the day of Israel's great awakening. Now, the ancient western wall of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, pardon me, this picture here, you see another uh, beautiful overlook of the city of Haifa, where there are palm trees, beautiful gardens, and it's a modern first world city in the world. Now this next picture, you'll see the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. This Wailing Wall, what makes it so significant to the Jewish people today, is it's believed to be the last standing structure that was a retaining wall from the temple complex that stood at the time of Christ. And for this reason, the Jews consider it sacred, and so they go to this Western Wall, or Wailing Wall, to quite literally pray and wail for the destruction of the temple and to fervently pray, and I mean pray, for the day that the temple can be rebuilt. And they put everything they've got into these prayers, and I would call them chanting. Here you see some Orthodox Jews, and at this table, if I had a live video clip, you would have seen them chanting and fervently wailing in a sing-song sort of a way, and Our guide told us they're rehearsing prayers, lamenting the destruction of the temple, and praying for the day that it could be rebuilt. Now, during our time in Israel, we had the opportunity to, of course, visit this wall. And as we were approaching it, as I often did, I prayed a quick prayer. And I just said, Lord, whatever you want for me here, whatever you want me to experience in this place, I want to receive it. I just went with an open mind, an open heart, Lord, teach me whatever you want for me here. And so as I was taking in the scene at the wall, it took me a minute to get to uh, an open spot on the wall so I could approach as there was quite a number of people there. But finally, I got to a spot on the wall and I, I silently leaned with my forehead up against the wall to pray as I saw many of the other pilgrims there doing. And so as I stood there with these Orthodox Jews all around me fervently praying and, and chanting for the rebuilding of the temple... I found myself at a complete loss for words. I just didn't know what to pray. It was was a, a surreal moment. It felt as though, I'll honestly say, it felt as though I had gone back in time. It felt like I was back at the time of Christ. These people in strange, speaking a strange tongue straight out of the Bible, speaking Hebrew, chanting, praying. It felt as though I'd gone back in time. I didn't know what to pray. And finally, this simple prayer crossed my mind. It was more of a question. And I simply said, Lord, 
what is your reply to all of these prayers? And immediately the Holy Spirit flashed three words across my mind. Receive my son. That was it. Receive my son. That was God's reply to all of these fervent prayers. Because you see, the ultimate goal of God for his chosen people, Israel, it's far grander than just a physical restoration of the nation. God is working towards the day of their spiritual restoration. Because you you see, today Israel's great need is not to make their land more prosperous, not to become stronger as a nation. They've got all of those things already, incredibly. Today, Israel's great need is to repent of their disbelief and to recognize Jesus as their Messiah and to receive God's Son as their Lord and Savior. And the exciting thing is, the Bible speaks of a day that that will take place, a day of national repentance and revival is coming for Israel. The only catch is, it will come in the aftermath of a tremendous battle. The prophecies of scripture tell us that there are two great battles yet to come that will be focused on the eradication of Israel. The first battle is called the Battle of Gog and Magog. Isn't that quite the name? No one's made a movie about that one yet, I don't think. Has anyone heard of the Battle of Gog and Magog? A couple of you, the prophecy experts. The second battle is one you've all heard of, the Battle of Armageddon. They've made quite a few movies by that title. Who here has heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Okay, so that's, that's the battle, that's the war to end all wars. But the Battle of Gog and Magog that the Bible refers to will happen first. We learn more of the details of this battle from Ezekiel 38, which uh, Vern read a portion for us earlier in the service. And in Ezekiel 38, it foretells how a great army from the far north called Magog, which most scholars believe will be Russia, with at least five other nations, will form a massive army described this way in verse 9. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. So here we see the, the names of the ancient tribes here, and of course, scholars are trying to place those ancient names uh, with modern-day nations. But nonetheless, it will be a massive coalition army that will be so massive it can be best described as a cloud coming together. And so, as this army is gathering, and we looked at in our last part in the series of how Jerusalem has become this bone of contention, this stumbling block for the nations, and we saw how just a month ago in December, again, the United Nations coming condemning the act of, of trying to move the capital of Jerusalem, of, pardon me, of Israel to Jerusalem, and how we see this ancient city is still this point of controversy. And so it's not hard to imagine how, again, the nations will come against Israel, seeking to eradicate her. And so as the world watches, and when it looks like Israel has no chance of survival, Ezekiel goes on to tell how God himself will intervene. First with an earthquake that will cause such a mayhem and confusion within the enemy ranks, they will actually start fighting within themselves. And finally, God will finish them off by raining down torrential rain, hail, and burning sulfur, which will utterly annihilate this seemingly unstoppable army. 
And this victory at the Battle of Gog and Magog will be so great, it will be greater than any of the previous miracles that Israel has experienced. It will be greater than the deliverance from the land of Egypt, or the crossing of the Red Sea, or when the walls of Jericho fell down, or the much more recent victories of the wars in 48, 67, and 1973. This stunning upset, this victory, will be on a scale almost unprecedented in all of world history. And we can just imagine this blanketing the news as everyone stands and watches in utter amazement at what has happened. This massive army defeated without the Israelis even having to fire a single shot. And the Bible says that this stunning victory will be so great that the world will be forced to acknowledge that God did it. And God says, I will make my name great amongst the nations. Even the secular world will have to say, there's no other explanation, God did it. But none will be more stunned amongst the nations at this miraculous deliverance than Israel herself. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, speaking about the same events, tells us how the people of Israel will respond to this miraculous deliverance. God is speaking here. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. This is an Old Testament prophecy. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Let me ask you, who have they pierced? These prophetic words almost jump off the page. Because who exactly did they pierce some five centuries later? Who had iron spikes in his hands and feet? Who had a spear pierce his side? Of course, none other than the Lord Jesus. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. I've seen firsthand what it looks like when someone mourns for the death of their children. It is the most devastating, gut-wrenching thing, and it doesn't just happen one time. It is a mourning that goes on and on in waves. It is a, it is, it is a wound, it is a mourning that is, well, unlike anything else. And that is why the prophet says this is the sort of mourning and wailing that is going to happen in Israel. They will mourn for me as one mourns for an only child. The sort of mourning that is gut-wrenching and it comes and goes in waves, but it doesn't just go away. It's not just like hitting your thumb with a hammer and it hurts for a while, but then it gets better. No, this is the sort of wound that doesn't just go away like that. In Israel's tears, in their mourning we see a far greater miracle than that of their deliverance in the battle. Because the miracle will be that their spiritual eyes will finally be opened to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And with that recognition will come the realization that they were the ones responsible for rejecting and killing him, their own Messiah. And the weight of that will overwhelm them with guilt and sorrow, causing the entire nation to mourn bitterly, as one mourns for an only child. 
But as 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I'm going to read that again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Isn't that incredible? Yes, when we finally realize the weight of our sin, what we have done, there, there is mourning, there is sorrow, there is shame. But when we repent, when we, when we unload, we say to the Lord, we're sorry. This repentance leads to salvation, which God gives freely. And then get this, it leaves no regret. God even takes the shame and the guilt of what we've done and he washes it away. Even the regret is gone. And in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, God also says of that day, speaking of Israel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What an incredible day that's going to be when Israel, not just as individuals, but as a nation, repents, believes, and receives Jesus, Messiah, God's Son. And on that day, his full forgiveness and salvation will flow through the land like a mighty river, washing away their sin, their guilt, and even their regret. But though the day of national revival on a grand scale is yet to come, today personal revivals are taking place all over Israel and with Jews all around the world. Now in the earlier picture I showed you of Rafi, our tour guide, and of course he's, he's a natural-born Israeli, he's a Jewish man born in Israel. Rafi was an incredibly fun and engaging and knowledgeable tour guide. He's the one who really put the excitement into the journey of everywhere we were going. His excitement, his knowledge was contagious. And one of the things that was incredible about Rafi is that he was extremely knowledgeable about the life teaching and miracles of Jesus. And so as we went from site to site and he would talk about Jesus did this here, he taught that there, what became clear to me was that though he was well versed in the events of scripture and and the life of Jesus Christ, and though he seemed to respect Jesus, I began to pick up that he did not personally believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so, on the day that we were preparing to go for a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, another pastor in the tour and myself, we were discussing with Rafi some of the things that Jesus had done in this particular region when the topic came up of what the modern Jewish opinion is, you know, the the popular modern Jewish person, what would their opinion of Jesus be? And so, I asked Rafi, what do you personally think of Jesus? He claimed to be the Messiah. What do you think? And so to this, Rafi replied, How could he be? For the Jewish people, we believe that when the Messiah comes, everything will be very, very good for Israel. But after Jesus came, everything went very, very bad for Israel. We were destroyed as a nation, and everywhere we went in the world, we were hated. We were the world's pariah. And so I replied, But you just told us about how Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple with not one stone left standing on top of another. That happened. How do you explain that? And so then he hemmed and hawed a little bit and he says, Well, he was a very wise man. 
Maybe he just put the pieces together and made a good guess. And so then at this point I was feeling rather bold, and so I replied, You said before that things would be very, very good for the Jews when the Messiah comes. But what do you think would happen if they rejected their Messiah when he came and killed him and didn't repent of it? What then? And while at this, Rafi smiled and he said, Okay, I see what you're saying. And you know what? Since God has given us back this land, more and more Jews are beginning to come around to that view. And just then we needed to keep moving, but Rafi quickly added this. You will soon hear a story about a man like that on the boat ride. And so this next picture you will see is of our boat captain named Daniel. He's standing on the deck of his boat as we are on the Sea of Galilee. And on this boat ride, the captain of this boat, Daniel, shared with us how he, like Rafi, had grown up in Israel as a regular Jew. He had been taught all of the regular Jewish things and how Christianity was wrong. He eventually became a tour boat operator on the Sea of Galilee, whose main customer base, ironically, were Christians, who had come to experience being on the same water that Jesus walked on and calmed at his command. And so he was happy, he said, to take these gullible people's money. He was happy to make a living off all of these Christians. And he thought of all of their talk and singing about Jesus was nonsense. But he shared that over the course of years, listening to them talk about Jesus, listening to them sing about Jesus, he began to think and to wonder. And then he said, after seven years, something happened. And then he said as an aside, and you remember, seven is a very important number. Seven is the number of completion. But after seven years, he said something happened. He had gone out on the water like he always did with his boat, and he sensed the presence of Jesus with him on the water. And at first, he just shook it off. He was just getting superstitious or, or something. But he said every time he went back out, it just kept getting stronger and stronger. With every trip in the, out on the water, it felt as though Jesus was just standing there right beside him saying, come to me, believe in me. And finally, he said he just couldn't take it anymore. And he just gave in. And he shared how it was out there on the water that he hit his knees and declared, Jesus, Yeshua, you are my Messiah. I believe in you. And I cannot describe to you how powerfully I just felt the presence of the Holy Spirit as he shared his testimony out there on the Sea of Galilee that day. But if I were to describe it to you, the spirit of grace and supplication would fit perfectly. Because it was through the spirit of grace that Daniel became increasingly aware of Jesus' presence. And it was that presence that caused him to seek him through the supplication of prayer. And he received salvation that day. And, and you know who was sitting right beside Daniel, listening to every single word he spoke very closely? It was Raphi. And it was later that night, I woke up in the middle of the night and the Lord had Raphi on my heart pray for him. And you know what? I've been praying for him ever since. Because I believe that just like Daniel experienced Jesus out there on the water, I believe Jesus wants Rafi to experience him and give his life to him as well, just as he does for all of Israel. 
I have one more testimony, an incredibly powerful testimony that I want to share with you. I have a video clip, and I want you to watch this. Here's what you need to do. You've got to first shave your head. You dress all in black. You've got to wear a white robe, eat only kosher foods. You've got to become a vegetarian. You face Jerusalem. You've got to face India when you pray. You pray only in Hebrew, and you grow a nice big beard. And if you do all of those outward cultural things, you'll discover the God of the universe. And I'm thinking this is crazy that someone thinks that they can force their culture on God and that God's going to be impressed by what you wear, what direction you face when you pray, what you eat, and all these sorts of things. It seemed to me that if there was a God out there who could be known, he should be able to be recognized no matter where I face, no matter how I'm dressed, because he's God. Growing up, we always understood that we had our Bible and the Gentiles had their Bible, the New Testament, and that they were two completely separate books. Because the only people I knew who were believers in Jesus were all people in our public school who were Italian Catholic, I imagined that Jesus was Italian. And so the understanding that he's actually Jewish was, was a shock. And then to hear that the New Testament was written by Jews, I, I couldn't believe it. My expectation was that the New Testament was like my grandparents had told me. It was a, a book on how to persecute the Jews and it's something you should stay away from. Of course, when you're told you should stay away from something, <laughs> curiosity gets the best of you and you've got to see it. When I opened the New Testament, I was expecting to find a handbook on how to persecute the Jews. My grandparents had warned me that it was written by people who killed the Jews. That's what I was expecting to see. And yet when I'm opening it, I'm reading a story written by Jews about Jewish people. The New Testament was a fascinating book. And so as I opened this book in the library, I kind of looked around, made sure that none of my friends had seen me taking a Christian Bible off the shelf. And I open it, here's the first sentence. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So three people are mentioned, and they're all Jewish. I was very shocked. And as I continue to read, I'm reading the story of a Jewish man who was born in a Jewish village, in a Jewish country, and one day walks into a synagogue and announces that he is the Messiah. The more I read the words of Jesus, the more I became attracted to him. It was as beautiful as anything I had ever read in any other part of the Bible. As I came to faith that Yeshua, that Jesus was the Messiah, it was clear that that was the most Jewish thing I could do. This is not a person who's a renegade to our people. This is the one who was promised in our Bible the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. It is astonishing. If you would just read that chapter, just without the Bible being around it, you would say, oh, this is some Christian Bible. This is Jesus. <laughs> when you realize, though, that it's in the middle of our Bible, our Jewish Bible, when I first came to faith, I dared not tell my father um, because this is a time period in the the 1970s when there were lots of gurus and cults 
And he was very concerned about me getting involved in some crazy sect and going off someplace. So I waited for months. And uh, when I finally told him, he was very skeptical. On his own then, he started to read about Jesus as well. About a year and a half later, I told him that the fellow who wrote one of the books that he had read, that this fellow was giving a lecture in the city of New York. And he agreed to come out to hear that person. And uh, one of the most amazing moments of my life was, the speaker said, would everyone here who is a Jewish believer in Jesus, would you raise your hand? And I raised my hand. My father also raised his hand. And I said, I looked over, I said, Pop, he didn't say would all the Jews raise their hand. He said, would all the Jewish believers in Jesus raise their hand? And my father looked over and he said, yes, I, I heard what he said. The decision to come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah was not something that was a momentary lark. It wasn't something that was a passing fad. And I could see changes in myself that I knew were not from within myself. I had kind of tapped in to a truth for our Jewish people that was very powerful. He referenced how Isaiah 53 was extremely impactful. And Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. Make no mistake about it. Right now, the Spirit of God is stirring in the land of Israel. And Jews are reportedly turning to Jesus as Savior in greater numbers now in this stage of history than in all 1,800 years of history combined before it. Isn't that incredible? Today, more are recognizing their Messiah than 1,800 years before it. The Spirit of God is stirring. We are living in incredible and exciting times. Yes, the last days, the end times, will come with trouble. But I hope we as a church are beginning to see that there is also going to be spiritual awakening and revival that God wants us to be a part of fostering. I think too often as Christians we get a bunker mentality. And we think, oh, the end times, it's all going to be bad. There's going to be wars and, and, and terrible things happening. And yeah, there's going to be some of that. But instead of saying, where's my bomb shelter? We need to start saying, hey... What can we do to get out there in the world and be a part of the great awakening and revival and salvation that God wants to bring to people before it's too late? And so here we must pause and turn the attention from Israel as we close. And I want to I focus on ourselves. Because you see, just as God desires to save Israel, God desires to save us, you and me. Because did you know that just like the Jews have to realize that they were responsible for piercing Jesus, we also are responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Yes, you and me. We are just as responsible for killing the author of life as the Jews. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the Apostle Paul, writing to Gentiles, that's all non-Jewish people, including us, writing to all Gentiles, Paul wrote this. He was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. 
He was handed over to die because of our sins, my sins. That's us. That's all of us. Whether Jew or Gentile, Jesus died for all. And when is the last time you ever really stopped to consider that, yes, your sins, all of them, were nailed to Jesus on that cross? When's the last time you shed tears at the thought? You know, in the church, I think we, we say it and we hear it so often that the words lose effect. But I want you to hear them again. Jesus died for you. Willingly. He laid down his life for you. No one took his life from him. No, Jesus looked out across all of time and eternity, and he saw you, and you, and you. He saw me. He saw all of us. And he saw the weight of what our sin deserved, the penalty that was due us. And the verdict was clear. There could be no other. Death, both physically and spiritually. And he saw this, and it was so clear to him what was necessary. And motivated by a love so deep that I cannot fathom it, even begin to imagine it, Jesus said, I will pay the price for everyone, for all. So let me ask you the question that your entire life hinges on. How will you respond? Maybe like Israel, your life is also in need of a great awakening. And God's desire for you is clear. He wants you to respond with true repentance for your sins. Ask Jesus for his forgiveness and receive his salvation as the Savior and Lord of your life. And if you've already done that, but have since allowed sin or complacency to clutter up your life and drag you down from living your life fully for Jesus, God wants you to also repent of that and recommit yourself to fully living for him. In this age. And 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. My friends, today are you compelled by Christ's love for you? If you are, he says, if you are living in Christ, don't live for yourself any longer. Live for him who died for you. And so today, my friends, how will we respond? How will you respond? Today can be the day that you respond in faith and receive Jesus' salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you are doing with your special chosen nation of Israel. We thank you that though they rejected you, though they pierced you, though they did not repent, and they suffered the consequences for many, many centuries, their nation was cut off, scattered. And yet in your sovereign will and in your incredible mercy and grace, you fulfilled your word and you've brought them back to their land, back to the soil of Israel. And we're seeing prophecy unfold right before our eyes. And we thank you that this isn't the end of it. That you have yet a greater restoration in place where they will repent and turn to you. And we thank you, Lord, for those like Daniel and the man's testimony in the video and his father and many others like him 
who are seeing Jesus for who he is, the Messiah of all, the Messiah of Israel. I pray for Rafi. I pray that you would open his eyes to this truth as well. And I pray, Lord, for us here today, that if we are in need of a spiritual awakening, to recognize who you are to us personally, to me, that you are my Messiah, you are my Savior. You've taken my sins upon yourself so that I could be forgiven and that I could live my life freely and fully for you with no regrets. I pray, Lord, that we could all experience this victory today and that we could turn to you in simple faith. We thank you that we can live in this time of history. We pray, Lord, that our church and the witness of this church would be unique in reaching those around us with this incredible message that Jesus is for everyone, not just for some, not just for the good, but especially for the bad, those who need a Savior you are so ready to save. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring many more to know this for themselves, even in our town and in our time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.